Okay, we're continuing together our study in chapter 31 of our Confession of Faith, dealing with the state of man after death and the resurrection of the dead. And uh, this is a great chapter because it tells us about our future, our hope, our outcomes. Um, It also uh, is a very sobering chapter in that it tells us of the outcomes of those who do not believe in Christ as their Savior. And uh, their outcome is very dreadful. It's as dreadful as ours is wonderful. We have been considering together the first paragraph, which deals with the state of the bodies and souls of men after death. And we have said that death is the separation of the soul from the body. The body goes to the grave and decays and sees corruption. But the souls after death immediately uh, go to God and are conscious and um, they all return to God. And then when they return to God, God makes a division between them, between the souls of the righteous and the souls of the, the wicked. And um, we've been considering together recently the uh, outcome of the souls of the righteous. And it says here in paragraph one, the souls of the righteous being then made perfect in holiness are received into paradise where they are with Christ and behold the face of God in light and glory, waiting for the full redemption of their bodies. So last time we considered together the fact that they're perfect in holiness, that when our souls uh, separate from our bodies and go to be with God, uh, they are the souls of just men made perfect. Uh, We read in uh, Hebrews chapter 12 and verse uh, 23. And we see that nothing can enter into heaven that is defiled or that defiles. And so therefore, since our souls are in heaven, they must be perfect. In 1 John 3, it says we should be like him when we see him. And uh, so when our souls go to be with Christ and see him, they are perfected. Right now, our souls are not perfect. Um, we still sin um, and we still give in to the temptations of the flesh and the world and the devil. But there... Um, our souls will not uh, be prone to uh, giving in to the temptations that are around us. Indeed, there will be no temptations around us when we are in heaven. And uh, so, therefore, um, the blessedness of that state will be that. There will be no conflict. Right now, there's part of you that wants to do right. And there's part of you that wants to do wrong. And we all experience that. And there's this war going on inside of us where we're tempted to do wrong and yet we're desiring to do right. We're going to be free from that battle when we get to heaven. And so the the souls of of the righteous will be perfect in holiness. And then secondly, we saw last time that they would dwell in paradise, that they would uh, be in the house of the Lord forever. As Jesus told the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. And, uh, of course, we saw that in the story of the rich man and Lazarus, that when uh, Lazarus died, he went to paradise, to Abraham's bosom, and the rich man um, went to hell. Now, having then uh, reviewed the material we covered last week, we want to go on from there. There's three more points that our confession makes about the blessedness of the righteous. And the first is that they live with Christ. The second is that they behold the face of God. And the third is 
is that they anticipate the redemption of their bodies. So we want to look at each of those in turn. So first of all then, having seen last time that the state of the souls of the righteous are perfect in holiness and dwell in paradise. Now thirdly, we want to consider together that they live with Christ. Now, this is um, the pinnacle of the blessing of heaven. Heaven isn't about um, you know, beautiful cities and golden streets and flowing streams and abundant wildlife and blue skies and, and never any pain or sorrow or sickness or death. Um, those are the details of heaven and surely in and of themselves they're nice and they're pleasant. But the wonder of heaven and the blessedness of heaven is that we will be with our Lord Jesus Christ. We will have a personal relationship with him and a personal walk with him. And uh, this is the great anticipation that we have that where he is, there we will be also. Because what Christianity is about is, is about a relationship with a person. And that person is Jesus Christ. And right now, we have a spiritual relationship with him. Then we will have a physical, immediate relationship with him as well as a spiritual and personal relationship with him, which we enjoy now. Well, let's turn in our Bibles, please, to the book of Philippians, chapter 1. Now... The biblical data that um, addresses this is, is very abundant, and we're going to look at a number of passages. So, First and Second Corinthians, Ephesians, um, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. So we're going to be looking at Philippians then, uh, chapter one. Philippians chapter one. And we're going to read together verses 21 to 23. Paul is contemplating the possibility of his immediate death. The reason why he's doing so is because he's in jail. And the Roman emperor doesn't like Christians and he's going to go to trial. And it may very well be the case that he is going to uh, get his head chopped off. And um, we'll start out at verse 20. He says, according to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. So he starts talking about life and death at the end of verse 20. Now verse 21, he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now when he says for me to live is Christ in verse 21 of chapter 1, He's saying, my whole life revolves around Christ. Christ is the central organizing principle of my life. Everything I do is related to him. Everything I do flows out from him and flows towards him. He is the pivot around which my life turns. And um, he's the, the, the central organizing principle. And he says, for me to live as Christ. And he says, for me to die as gain. That is... If I die, I will be in a better situation than I am while I'm alive. So while he's alive, he has Christ as the center and focus of his life. But if he dies, it'll get better than that. There'll be a net gain in the blessedness of his situation. Verse 22, but if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I know not. For I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. 
Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. So here's Paul. He's saying, you know, I really want to die and go to heaven. You know, most people in this earth are not too interested in dying. It's the last thing they want to do. But for the Christians, that's like number one on our agenda. And it doesn't mean that we're suicidal, and it doesn't mean we do stupid things to try to um, hasten our death or cause our death. But for us, death is not the end, it's the beginning. Death is not uh, a, a, a cold, dark pit. Death is an open doorway for us. And so when we think about death, we think about it's the doorway into heaven to be with Christ. And so he says, I have a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. So clearly at the moment he dies, who's he going to be with? He's going to be with Christ. He doesn't go into oblivion. He doesn't go into unconsciousness. He's immediately with um, the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the wonderful hope that we have to look better forward to. It says, I have a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Now, when we have Christ in this life, we have it really good. It's a wonderful source of comfort and encouragement and blessedness to be able to company with Christ every day. Uh, but when we go to heaven, it's going to be far better than the very best that we would experience here. So... Um, that's the first passage. Now, the second passage we want to look at uh, that tells us that when we die, we go to live with Christ is 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So we'll turn back the other direction. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It's Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We'll look at verses 6 through 8. We're going to start out reading at verse 1, but that's not where our focus is going to be. Well, we'll start out at verse 6. We don't need to read all that stuff in the interest of time. Okay, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 6. It says, Therefore we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Now, right now, all of you are at home in the body. I don't see any dead people out there. You're all alive. Okay? So you're now, you, that is your soul, is at home in your body. Your body is your house in which your soul dwells. But there's coming a day uh, in which it says that we are going to be absent from the body. And you see that when you go to a funeral, don't you? Uh, the body's there, but the person isn't. They are absent. They're somewhere else. They're gone. And where are they? Well, it says if they're gone from the body, there's only one place they can possibly be, and that's present with the Lord if they're Christians. So absent from the body, present with the Lord, present in the body, absent from the Lord in terms of personal um, and immediate relationship. 
Okay? The next passage we want to look at that tells us that we will live with Christ, be present with the Lord, is in Luke 22.43. Now, we've already looked at this a bunch. I bet you can quote it. Luke 22.43. Who's speaking there? The thief on the cross. Okay. When he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said to him, verily I say unto you, today you will be with who? With me in paradise. Okay. That's Luke 23.43. Today you will be with me in paradise. So he didn't just say today you'll be in paradise. That would have been you know, pretty, a lot better situation than he was in right there on the cross. But the essence of heaven is today you will be with me in paradise. That was, that was the wonder. Okay, next passage is Hebrews 12, the book of Hebrews in the middle of the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 12. Verses 22 to 24. Now he's speaking about what's going to happen to us um, after we die. And he says, verse 22 of Hebrews 12, But you are come unto Mount Sion, unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, and to the general assembly and church of the firstborn which are written in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling which speaketh better things than that of Abel. So those are all the things we come to when we die and go to heaven. We're in the city of God, the new Jerusalem. We're in the company of the angels. We're in the company of all the other believers, the church of the firstborn. We're in the company of God and the spirit of, of just men's made perfect, which is the same as the general assembly and church of the firstborn. It's just a further description of them. And we're with Jesus, the media of the new covenant. And, um, and of course, the sacrifice he made, the blood of sprinkling. And so these are all the things that we experience when we go to heaven. We have a wonderful city, and we have wonderful companionship. We have angels, we have other Christians, we have God the Father, and we have God the Son. Okay? The next passage we want to look at is John 17. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, chapter 17. And this passage is a passage in which Jesus is praying for his disciples. And in John chapter 17, and in verse 24, Jesus is praying to his Father. And he says, Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. Now, when Jesus prays, God gives him what he asks for. 
And what he asked for is, Father, I will that those whom you have given me, those who are God's elect, those who are the saved of, of God, that they would be with me where I am. Now, if you turn back to chapter 14 of the same book, you'll see Jesus offering exactly this comfort to his disciples. In John chapter 14 and in verse 1. It says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Jesus is speaking here. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. Now here it is. That where I am, there you may be also. So once again, he says, you're going to be where I am. You're going to be with me. And then um, a couple of passages in Revelation, Revelation 3 and verse 21, very last book in the Bible, right at the end, Revelation chapter 3, verse 21, Jesus has just got done speaking to the seven churches, and um, he says, in verse 21 of chapter 3, To him that overcomes, will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my Father in his throne. Now, I don't literalize this in the sense that, you know, Jesus is sitting in a chair and we're going to squeeze into the chair right beside him. To sit in someone's throne is a figure of speech for ruling along with them, having uh, the authority and the power that they have. Joseph sat with Pharaoh in the throne, okay, in Egypt. And uh, he had all the power of, of, uh, of Egypt that Pharaoh did, uh, except that he was subject to Pharaoh alone. And so in the same way, uh, Jesus sits in his Father's throne. We sit in his throne. But clearly the picture there is one of closeness, one of, 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 a, of a, confid a relationship of confidants and uh, who are sitting, as it were, side by side, uh, consulting with one another over the rule of, of the kingdom. And then Revelation chapter 20. Now, in Revelation chapter 20, verses 4 through 6, it describes the condition of those in the intermediate state, that is, those who have died um, and are with Christ, as we've been reading about, uh, prior to the resurrection. It says in verse 4 of Revelation 20, And I saw thrones, and they that sat upon them. Now, remember we read about thrones just a minute ago in chapter 3 and, and uh, verse 21. He says, And I saw thrones, and they that sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. 
And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. So the question is, what will we be doing when we're in heaven? We'll be living and reigning with Christ. Now, the thousand years here is a, a metaphorical term for the completeness or the fullness of the period of time in which God is gathering his people together. You remember that Peter said that a thousand years is a day and a day is a thousand years. And so this thousand years refers to the new covenant era. And uh, it will conclude um, when it is complete. It is a long but indefinite period of time. And um, when I was uh, preaching through Second Thessalonians, I dealt quite a bit with this. We're going to deal with it again uh, in a great amount of detail when we get to chapter 32 of our confession. So it won't be long before we're explaining the meaning of the thousand years and all of that. But suffice to say that this is a picture of those who are in the intermediate state. And this is kind of the climatic passage in the New Testament on the subject of the intermediate state. And so it says in verse 5, But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that has part in the first resurrection. On such the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Without going into all the detail of everything that's there, uh, clearly the believers are reigning with Christ in heaven on thrones. They're beheaded. They're not yet resurrected. Um, they're, uh, they're, they're beheaded souls that are there. Um, in other words, people who were beheaded on earth and their bodies um, are still on earth. They are in heaven and they are awaiting the resurrection. So anyway, these are the passages that uh, explain and, and set forth in, in a great amount of, of detail and a great abundance of evidence that uh, the, the, the essence of what we look forward to after we die is being with Jesus Christ and having personal fellowship with him and uh, worshiping him and and talking to him and enjoying his company. Now, think of the person you love more than anyone else. Um, when you're separated from them, you are not nearly as content as when you are together with them. And while you're separated from them, you're assured of their love and affection, and, and, and uh, you have their love and affection, but it's not the same as being with them, is it? And you look forward to the day or the hour or the time when you can go and be with them. And you see them and you embrace them and, and you're together. It's kind of like when families get together um, for a holiday or something like that. There's great delight at seeing those you love and being in their physical presence. And just take that and multiply it by, you know, 10 million times. And that's what it will be for us when we uh, finally are reunited with Christ and uh, see him face to face and uh, can touch him and be touched by him and, and embrace him and fellowship with him. So that's what we have to look forward to and it's going to be great. Now, the, uh, are there any questions about that? Okay, 
the, uh, the, the fourth thing that's mentioned in our confession that we're, the souls of the righteous are going to enjoy, and that is, <clears throat> is that not only are they with, with Christ, but they behold the face of God in light and glory. They behold the face of God in light and glory. Now, the Bible tells us that no man can see God and live. And it tells us that many times in many places. And yet when we get to heaven, we're going to be able to see God and live. And we're going to be able to behold his face. Something that no one could do on earth. You remember when Moses said to God, show me your glory. And uh, he said, uh, no one can see my face and live. I'll put you in this cleft to the rock and I'll cover it with my hand and I'll, I'll go past and you can see my back parts, but you can't see my face. Remember the story? And um, so anyway, what's going to happen is that when we get to heaven and we have perfect souls and perfect bodies, we will be able to see God and see him face to face. So let's look at Revelation 22, since we're in Revelation 20. In Revelation chapter 22, <clears throat> it says... Beginning at verse 1, Revelation 22, 1, last chapter in the Bible. John is speaking of, of the angel here who's giving him the, the guided tour of heaven. It says, And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the midst of the street of it and on either side of the river, was there the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits, and yielded her fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him, and they shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads, and there shall be no night there. They shall need no candle, neither light of the sun, for the Lord God giveth them light, and they shall reign forever endeavor. So we're going to be able to see the face of God and of the Lamb, and uh, we will be able to behold God in all of his glory. Um, the idea here is that the greatest purpose for which we are created and the deepest fulfillment we can have as human beings is to understand and see and grasp the character and the nature and the attributes of God. We were made for relationships. And the relationship we were made the most for is our relationship with God. And, you know, when God created Adam in the garden, he says, it's not good for man to be alone. And it's not good for any of us to be alone. We all recognize that hermits, people who go hide out and stay all by themselves and never see anybody at any time for any reason, um, there's something terribly twisted about those people. God created us to be social creatures. That's why we gather together into families, into churches, into societies, into nations. Um, but the main relationship for which God made us is not 
those horizontal relationships. The main relationship for which God made us is a vertical relationship, a relationship with him. But the trouble is he's holy and we're sinful, so we can't have a relationship with him and we can't come into his presence. We would wither and die like a bug in the fireplace if we did because we have no capacity as sinful people to be in the presence of a perfectly holy God. But when we become perfectly holy at our glorification, we will be able to be in his presence and not only be unscathed by it, but to be totally fulfilled by it and find our greatest satisfaction in our relationship with him. You know that if you don't have a close relationship with anybody, that's not very good. And when you find somebody you can have a real close relationship with, that's really nice. But the relationship that you're going to have with God in heaven is going to be so much closer than any kind of a relationship you could have with anybody here on earth, even at its very best, as to eclipse it into total oblivion. And so our, our, our delight and our wonder will be that we can see God, we can see his face, which means that we can have an intimate, personal relationship with God himself. And not only not be destroyed by that, but be completely saturated with satisfaction forever without ever being um, besotted with that. You know, it's kind of like if you, if you eat something like honey, you know, the first taste is like really good. But after two or three spoonfuls, you've had enough. And if you eat more than that, you'll get sick, right? Well, with God, you never get sick of him. It's never like you can spend too much time, have too much conversation, be too close, too intimate, too knowledgeable, too transparent. Um, we will have an infant capacity to have an infinitely deep relationship with God for an infinite period of time. And it only gets better and better and better. And that's why heaven won't ever be boring. That's why we won't run out of things to do. Because to plumb the infinite depths of an infinite relationship with an infinite God is something that is infinitely satisfying for an infinite period of time. Because Things can never satisfy you, can it? Where do you find your greatest satisfaction? You don't find them in objects. You find them in people, don't you? In your relationship with people. And then, of course, people always disappoint us because no matter how wonderful they are, they still have issues and we have issues and there's always trouble to some degree or another, but all that's going to be gone with God. So we will see his face and that will be wonderful. Uh, the final thing that our confession says about the state of those who have died and gone to heaven prior to the resurrection is it says that they uh, not only behold the face of God in light and glory, but it also says they are waiting for the full redemption of their bodies. Now, when it says they're waiting for the full redemption of their bodies, what that means is that though they are blessed in heaven, that blessedness is incomplete until they get their resurrected bodies. So turn please to Revelation chapter 
6, and we'll look at verses 9 through 11. Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. In Revelation 6, verse 9, it says, And when he, that is the angel, had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. So here's disembodied spirits in heaven. Their bodies are corrupting on the earth. Their souls are in heaven. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And white robes were given to every one of them, and it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season, until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. Now, what we see here is that the blessedness of those who are in this intermediate state, that is, they've died, their bodies are in their grave, their souls are in heaven, their blessedness is incomplete. And there's five reasons why their blessedness is incomplete. And the first is that they have not yet received the redemption of their bodies. A soul without a body is incomplete. You are created to be a body-soul unit. When your soul separates from your body, you are, the Bible says, unclothed. And that's why white robes were given to them. But a robe is no substitute for a body. Okay? So they've not received the redemption of their bodies. And their brethren, the elect people of Christ, are yet partially unredeemed. Some of them are still on earth. Some of them have yet to be saved. When, when our blessedness is complete is when the whole church of God is all together as one. And there will be no more separation or division from our fellow believers. Okay? In this case, somewhere on earth and somewhere in heaven, and therefore, there was a lack of, of a completion of, of the body of Christ, the church. Um, the third reason why their blessedness is incomplete is because um, they've not yet received their inheritance in terms of the new heavens and the new earth. That doesn't come until after the second coming. Now, they're in heaven, and heaven's wonderful, but heaven is not the new heavens and the new earth, which is where we're going to be forever. And so we wait for the redemption of creation, like it says in Romans chapter 8. And then fourthly, um, the disembodied spirits in heaven have not yet been vindicated fully um, by the final judgment. Now, we see these people saying, how long is it going to be, Lord, before those who beheaded us are going to be brought to justice? And he says, it's going to be a while. And so they haven't received the full vindication yet at the day of judgment regarding um, the acts of their enemies. And then finally, um, those enemies have not yet uh, been judged. Okay, They have not yet received their final punishment. They're still running around loose. Um, and so... Uh, there has not yet been this final disposition of, of justice. So for this reason, the blessedness of the saved in heaven, though it is tremendously greater than what the best Christian has here on earth, 
it's still incomplete because until the resurrection and until the final judgment, redemption is not finished and the saving work of Christ has not been fully applied and the kingdom of God has not been fully established. And so the Bible never idealizes the disembodied condition and it always holds up as the true hope of believers a future historical consummation which body and soul are brought back together forever in the new heavens and the new earth after the day of judgment when all the church is gathered together and all the wicked are finally disposed of. So that's the state of the disembodied. It is a little bit disquieting condition that they're in as we can see from the attitude that is here. And while they are exceedingly blessed, that blessedness is incomplete. So that's the state then of the redeemed of the righteous between the time that they die and the time of the resurrection, which has yet to occur. All right, are there any questions anybody wants to ask? Well, we have a lot of wonderful things to look forward to. I feel totally inadequate in describing the wonder and the beauty and the, and the delightfulness and the desire of heaven, but uh, just sit down and read through Revelation 21 and 22. Anytime you start wondering uh, how wonderful heaven is going to be and the eternal state is going to be, and uh, I find that whenever I get a little discouraged when I just read through Revelation 21 and 22, um, I get encouraged real fast. So uh, you may not understand everything that's there, but it's clear that whatever is there, um, it is wonderful beyond words and beyond description. All right, well, let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for the blessed hope that we have to look forward to. We thank you, Father, for the wonder and the glory of heaven and for the delight that it is to be with Christ, which is far better, to be with Christ, which is gain, to be with Christ, which is to be in paradise. Father, how we long to be with Christ. Father, we pray that you might help us to labor by faith and to your pleas to give us sight. And Lord, we pray that um, we might be able to share this wonderful message of this wonderful future and this wonderful place and most importantly, this wonderful relationship with you and your son um, that lies ahead of us and that death is not the end but the beginning. Father, we thank you that there is a redemption for our bodies yet to come. And Father, we pray that um, we might be able to lead many more to faith in Christ so that they too might have this blessed hope to look forward to. Father, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.